Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, pod people, and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the show where two movies with something in common go head-to-head to figure out which one did it best. And on this week's show, in the red corner, Dustin Hoffman dresses as a woman to steal a woman's livelihood. While in the blue corner... Robin Williams dresses as a woman to steal a woman's livelihood. Sorry, you're too tall. I can be shorter. No, I can't use you. Too short. Oh, I can be taller. Too moody. Next. Too old. Too stubborn. You're too much trouble. Too tough. Too temperamental. Too pushy. Too difficult. Michael, no one will hire you. Soon everyone will know that she's Dustin Hoffman and he's Tootsie. To put his family back together, Daniel Hillard needed a job. Do you have any special skills? I do voices. But he found a way. I'm placing an ad for a housekeeper. Housekeeper? Could you make me a woman? To have both. Wow. Let's pray. Hello? You for Janiyah, don't fire. Papa's got a brand new bed. So which of these films are we loving and which are we dragging? You're about to find out in Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken! Hello Clash Podders, I'm Chris Tilly. I'm Vicky Crumpton. And Alex is sitting this one out for fear of saying the wrong thing and getting cancelled. <laughs> it's the truth, isn't it? He's scared, isn't he? It's handy, isn't it? He's running scared. (laughs) (laughs) And it's unprofessional as well, because these are Alex's choices, even though he didn't know they were his choices, because he never consults the Google Doc. (laughs) So here we are. Uh, Thoughts, Vicky? Um, Are we going to be all right with that, Alex, talking about cross-dressing? I think we'll be just fine, if not better. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> oh, no, what do you mean? Because he, he enjoys that occasionally. Oh, I does suppose he? that's true. Well, yeah, you've seen his fault. You've, oh, sorry, you've been funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of those stories that you know already. <laughs> yeah, he likes to dress up, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. We could do with him on this week's show. And I've forgotten to ask him which one's his favourite. I'll have to text him in a minute because if we draw, yeah. we'll have a problem. Um, So I gave a clue last week due to Alex's silence, and that was something about both these films being a drag. 
um, everyone then guessed movies about drag queens. Mm. So I followed that up by making references to the high collars both these characters wear to hide their Adam's apples. <laughs> and everyone guessed movies about drag queens again. <laughs> uh, so that didn't work. Uh, but the answer was Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire. And we have a winner. And that winner is, uh, well, I think someone got there earlier, but then I lost the tweet or they deleted it. So the first person I can see is... Marion Baudet. Yay! Congratulations, Marion, who said oh, she really hopes it these, it's these two. So that's nice. That's nice. Uh, what's her prize, Vicky? So an, a lady will come around and do your hoovering for a bit mm-hmm. and some dancing. Yes. And I can sort that out for you. It's not a problem. A, a normal lady? Uh, yes. Or a special lady? No, let's just have a lady. Do okay. It. A let's, lady. Just have, let's not take any more money from women. Okay, good point. Um, right, so, uh, connection section. Oh, so, a cisgender actor man, down on his luck, dresses up as a woman who is a better version of his male self. Then they have a shower to hide their disguise. They are attacked in the street by or with a man. False teeth are very prominent. And then they ask very personal questions to a woman about her love life. Mm, very personal. Yeah. S- slightly uncomfortable. Um, like I said, clothed with high collars. I hadn't actually noticed. Yeah, that's sort of doing the behind the scenes rather than do anything there. They just decided to dress them both with the high collars. Makes and therefore, sense. Yep. Job done. Cross-dressing women getting told how unattractive they are over and over again. Yeah, that's the... That's These the, people get battered with their looks. That's the big joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you know they're both now, like really recently, they've both been turned into musicals? Oh, I knew Doubtfire had. I didn't know Tootsie had. Yeah. Yeah. On Broadway I mean, or just sort of off-Broadway kind of thing? One of the... Dalfi was in Seattle. Yeah. So then was going to be a really famous Seattle theatre. Tootsie, I'm can't, I can't remember from my research. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, both musicals uh, mm. both did not go down brilliantly well because oh. updating the conceit is pretty tricky. Yes. Yeah. Just oh. leave the conceit in the past. Yeah, we've done it. Yeah, and it was... It, you know, it worked then, it might not work now. Yeah. It definitely doesn't work now. Yeah. Uh, lying to your boss is, is sort of a, a trait of both of these films. Yes. Scary nannies. <laughs> There's a scary nanny in Tootsie. There is. Mrs. Yeah. Crawley. Yeah. I guess Mrs. Doubtfire isn't scary. Maybe she looks scary. And now I'm doing it. Uh, all right, connection's done. Um, so let's go on with it. On Thursday, Vicky is turning this podcast into a nanny state. <laughs> uh, wait for it. Meaning today I'm turning Dustin Hoffman into Dustin Hoffwoman. <laughs> that shouldn't be funny. Guess in. <laughs> I love it. Let me take you on a journey. A social commentary about sexism in the workplace, written, produced and directed by men. That's Tootsie, a film in which Dustin Hoffman plays an actor who can't get a job because he's difficult. So dresses as a woman because women are less difficult. Though he then gets the job because the woman he's pretending to be is difficult. It's all very confusing, as are the many triangles in this film, as Dustin's Dorothy falls for his co-star, whose dad falls for him slash her, as does another of his co-stars and the woman whose role he stole. But none of that really matters as the movie ends with an acting masterclass from Hoffman, playing an actor, playing an actress, playing a character, improvising a speech which he helped write. <laughs> Presenting for your podcasting pleasure, Tootsie. So, Vicky. Mm, yeah. When did you first see this? Like two days ago. Awesome. Yeah, I know. I'd never seen it. And so it was... 
Uh, you know, I always say that Mark Parsons always refers to the Halliwell's Guide as to which hasn't been updated as well, not in our house since I don't know ninety three or something. Mm-hmm. So anything post ninety three is definitely not interested in because it's not in the Halliwell's Guide. So Tootsie, he couldn't. He's like, is that a three star film or a four star film? He was unsure, but it's just one we've never got around to watching together, and he's he's wanted to watch it for a while, and so did I. So it was a fun. An unusual podcast experience, really, in that I was like, let's watch a film together for the podcast. And Mark went, yeah, all right then. Wow. So that was good. <laughs> I watched it with someone who hadn't seen it before as well. Yeah, we both enjoyed it. Good. Yeah, yeah we did. Georgina enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. Well, my history is different. I mean, I this film has always been around for me because it came out in 82. So it was in the video store by the time I was about six. It was a, it was such a big release. I mean, it was the second most successful film of 1982 behind E.T. Oh, right. Which is mad. Yeah. And so I remember there being tons of copies of it at the video store, I guess, renting it or my folks renting it and watching it or watching bits of it and just not really understanding it. Yeah. That's the trouble. I mean, this is not a film for little kids. But I happened to see it when I was a little kid. And so revisited again a few years later when I was in my Bill, my big Bill Murray phase. And I didn't even know he was in it. Mm. So when he shut at first, I I didn't have my correct glasses on. I think I've become allergic to my other glasses. They make my nose itch. And so anyway, that's a different story. So I was staring at the telly and I was like, is that Bill Murray in the kitchen? And I was like, I think so. And then the minute he spoke, I was like, wow, amazing. Yeah, Yeah. it's pre-Ghostbusters Bill Murray. But he was still a star in America because of uh, Saturday Night Live and, and Caddyshack. And he's uncredited in this film. They sort of agreed. Let's just let's just have it be a surprise for the audience that oh, you're in nice. it. So they didn't really promote or publicise it. Okay. Um, but yeah. So I mean, I found it kind of funny. Bits of slapstick in it, but yeah, it wasn't until I watched it when I was a little bit older and I got a bit more out of it. So here we are. Let's talk about behind the scenes because it's actually quite interesting. This one. Okay. Um, three year process getting this film written. It, it there's sort of two ways it started. It kind of started with Dustin Hoffman and his friend Murray. Uh, Shizgul, uh, talking about what they called the Shirley inside every man. Does every man have a woman who wants to get out? Was this discussion they had? But they were also questioning if masculine behaviour is learned. Mm-hmm. And they were wondering if they'd been born a woman, would they be treated differently? Yes. <laughs> I'll just answer that for you now. Uh, yes, you would. A lot of the questions here <laughs> could be answered here. Um, so they wrote a draft of a script together called Shirley. And at the time, there was a tennis player called Renee Richards uh, in the headlines uh, because uh, she had had male to female sex reassignment. Mm -hmm. And so it was a big story. So they were writing a script about a tennis player, Mm. um, but they couldn't make it work. At the same time, another script was floating around Hollywood about an unemployed male actor who cross-dresses to get jobs uh, by a guy called Don Maguire. And um, Hoffman, Hoffman read that and did a deal behind the scenes and these projects merged and Hoffman decided to make his character an actor rather than tennis player and he decided to make it autobiographical because Dustin Hoffman is famously one of the most difficult actors to ever live Mm. and so he made his actor him. A joke at his own expense. Okay. Um, The studio suggested getting Larry Gelbart on board to write. He created and produced uh, MASH on TV. Right. So, and there is, I think there's a real sitcom vibe to this movie. Especially the music, but we'll get to that. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, and they spent a year meeting and talking and doing improvisations. Um, Hal Ashby was brought on board to direct. Right. Uh, he left due to previous commitment, but there's some great footage of him doing costume tests with Dustin Hoffman back when Hoffman uh, wasn't playing her as sort of a southern belle mm. and has a slightly higher pitched voice and blonde hair. It's very different. Uh, but Michael o- Michael Ovitz, the super agent, was Hoffman's agent and he was also Sidney Pollock's agent. So he sent it to Pollock 
and Pollock thought the joke was overextended. And he said, I don't know what this is about. So he turned it down. And then Murray, Sh- uh, I keep getting this guy's name wrong, Shizgul. Murray Shizgul met with him and pitched it. He said, it's the story of a person who becomes a better man by becoming a woman. Right. Which is kind of the, the line they try and use at the end at of the, the end, movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, Pollock said yes, but brought in Ma- Elaine May on board to sort out some of the plot and the women characters. And Elaine May is this amazing woman in Hollywood who doesn't get the credit she sort of deserves because she, she did a lot on The Graduate. She did a lot on this. She, she did just a lot of work without getting her name on the films. Um, so the first thing May did was to introduce a roommate. I think you would like that yeah. as a screenwriter. <laughs> um, because Hoffman said, no, I'm a 40-year-old man. Why am I going to be living with another man? Well, then you've got to talk to yourself all the time. So that's exactly. not good, is it? <laughs> exactly. How she put it was, that's your shadow. That's who you talk to. Um, But he said, no, I'm not doing it. I cannot figure out who I would live with at this age. And then he went to a party and he met Bill Murray and they went back and drank (laughs) till the early hours. And he phoned her up and said, I'd live with Bill Murray. (laughs) And only Bill Murray. So if you can't get him, unwrite this. Well, that's kind of how it happened with this film, with a lot of things. They got Bill Murray and she wrote Bill Murray into it. Brilliant. Um, And he, uh, Elaine May then said to, to Hoffman, um, Terry Gar needs to be in this film. I'm writing a role for Terry Gar. Right. And he said, but uh, what if there's not a place for in the film? And she just said, I'm writing a role for Terry Gar. <laughs> and so that's how we got the Sandy character. Okay. Signed her up, uh, brought her on board. Um, as, the dire- as Pollock put it, we didn't have time to write a complex love story. Mm. So we cast someone really fit. <laughs> As the, as, the, as the female lead. So Jessica Lang, uh, as he put it, it needed to be love at first sight. Yeah. So they cast her based on her looks, which is harsh. And she said she found it quite hard because she's not a comedic actress. She hadn't done any comedy. She wasn't comfortable doing comedy. And she does kind of play the straight role anyway. So, I mean, she won an Oscar for this. Mm. So it's, it worked out fine. But yeah, I'm not sure they went into that with the right intentions. Um, and... Uh, Gelbart based that character on his daughter because he said his daughter kept uh, getting together with the wrong guy. Don't we all? Did it? Did have you? No, I haven't. <laughs> I managed to swerve that. But <laughs> I think, what? Uh, but he said he could see this form of masochism in his daughter where she just kept going back to the wrong guys. And so that's how he wrote Julie. Uh, harsh on his daughter. Um, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> uh, the only other bit of casting, Dabney Coleman was cast as the agent. Yes. But Hoffman didn't like it because he saw him as too much of a peer. And he, it, as they were putting this film together, he was having these huge arguments with Sidney Pollock mm-hmm. and he looked up to him <laughs> and he was could get scared of him. And so he said, you're my agent. Yeah. Come back to acting because he hadn't acted in 20 years and play the agent. And Pollock refused as he refused a lot of things on this film. <laughs> But he convinced him with a, bo- a bunch of flowers. Pollock played the agent and then they gave they Dave Dabney Coleman the director role, the sleazy director, that Coleman then based on Pollock. Right, OK. <laughs> Which is not all that flattering when you think about it. But the way he dresses and his hand movements were based on Pollock. Let's just hope his behaviour wasn't. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because there's a scene, we'll talk about it when we get there, but... Gina Davis is in this film, which I didn't know also, mm-hmm. but she's mostly naked. Mm-hmm. So She's not naked. Sorry, she's got a very sheer bra yes. and knickers on. 
and that's it. And it happens a couple of times. Then you think, God, if you're Gina Davis, how do you feel about that? Like you're in this like very seminal, groundbreaking work that everybody loves. Um, and you're in it mostly in your knickers. So then I was like, well, Sydney Pollock, you've done the thing that you're lampooning. You've got an act. She doesn't need to be in her pants. Like all it is is to show that this is a, a women's dressing room and that maybe a man dressed as a woman would be uncomfortable or shouldn't be in that room. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is quite demeaning to do, especially to repeat it as Agreed. well. Agreed. It's there for a visual joke. But um, how she got cast, she was not an actress. Right. She was a model. And they found her in a Victoria's Secret uh, brochure because they wanted someone that would look good in their underwear. Yeah, <laughs> no shit. <laughs> so that's how she ended up with the role. But when she got on set, they liked her so much, they ended up writing her more lines and more and more scenes and that launched a, an amazing acting career. But mm-hmm. it's funny how that happened. It's pretty standard, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not always good actors though. That's 100% true, yeah. You do look good, but it isn't working. So they spent a lot of money and time trying to get the look right. And this was hundreds of thousands of dollars over quite a long period of time. Um, on getting the script right, but also getting the look right, because they all agreed we can't do this if Hoffman can't pass as a woman. And so the Adam's apple was hidden behind shirts. As I said, they pulled the skin up with a wig and rubber bands holding his skin in place. They hid the maleness of his eyes behind those big glasses. And um, Hoffman said they spent a long time figuring out the size of his breasts. Right. To be proportionate, I guess, Mm. to the old uh, hip to waist ratio. Mm. Otherwise you fall over, Mm -hmm. like Barbie. Yes. Not me. <laughs> but Barbie Adol would fall over in yeah. real life. Good. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so he would spend three hours putting on makeup to cover up his stubble. Um, I talked about that screen test. It, it's it's very different husky voice in the screen test. But um, but yeah, he went with the, the sort of higher southern bell thing. And then he went to a Rus- the Russian tea room, as you see in the movie. Um, he saw John Voigt um, <laughs> and he complimented John Voigt on a performance and John Voigt didn't figure it out. That it was Dustin Hoffman? Yes. Okay. And that's when he knew he nailed it. And to be fair, watching it with someone who'd never seen it before, it took them quite a few seconds to clock that that was Dustin Hoffman uh, in the scene in the film. Okay. Yep. So, so she, not only has she not said she didn't know anything about it, is that what you're saying? She did not know it was about cross-dressing. I okay. didn't even let her see the cover of the film because okay. it gives it away. I mean, he's, yeah, it is, it, is, it is impressive. It really is. Yeah. Um... So, uh, right, finally, before we get into the movie, yeah. um, I want to get into some juicy quotes. So I've read a lot of quotes from Hoffman on this and I've seen him talk about it a lot. So this is how Wikipedia describes it because it's a bit all over the place what he says, but this is what he said. He was shocked that although he could be made up to appear as a credible woman, he would never be a beautiful one and that he had epiphany when he realised that he, although he found this woman interesting, he would not have spoken to her at a party because she was not beautiful and that as a result he had missed out on many conversations with interesting women. <laughs> We're all right, Dustin. You can move on. Don't worry about it. Go and talk to the pretty ones. Uh, and then other stuff I picked up in these interviews. Men ignored him when he walked into a room dressed as as Dorothy. He couldn't believe how callous they could be. He hated how he disappeared when he walked into rooms. And then he said he feels like he felt like men wouldn't be interested in this woman and she wouldn't compromise herself for a man. So she would ignore that and focus on her work. Right. I feel, I feel like he's taking a lot of the wrong things away from this. Yeah. It's just hard to hear a man go, oh, wow, it is different, isn't it? And it is quite hard. Yeah. And also, and that's a good point, but also, did it take him doing this for him to realise that he only hooked up with pretty girls in rooms? <laughs> yeah. You know? Did someone like put oh. him in a lineup and he's like, oh, now that you've done that. Oh, yeah, I do ignore munters. <laughs> 
never occurred to me. I hadn't realised until I had to be one. And also the way he talks about it, you'd think he was Warren Beatty. And this is the thing. Does he know what he looks like? Because pre The Graduate, I don't think Hoffman... No, I think I'm a character. Yeah, yeah, you are. Like, you don't. After, after The Graduate, sure. Yeah, yeah. He's rich and famous. He's banging everything It makes moves. a difference. But yeah. before then, I don't think he's getting all this no. that he's claiming he is. He's got a wonderful face for a character actor. <laughs> So anyway, that's a bit uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> and it does sort of play into what we'll talk about when we talk about the film, what it gets slightly wrong. But um, anyway, very quickly, regarding the shoot, um, the big thing they all agreed on was that they wouldn't play it for laughs. They played it straight and, and Hoffman said it was we shot it like a Chekhov play. It was all about finding the honesty and authenticity. So shall we see if they succeeded? Sure. Right. Let's talk about the movie. And I'm starting off with a section called Meet Michael Dorsey. So I do like this opening sequence because he's applying makeup to himself. Yes. Setting up that he's got the skills. It's important, isn't it? Because when Dorothy appears, I think it's because I watched them out of order. I watched Mrs. Doubtfire first and there's such extensive, brilliant montage work about getting to the look. And then when he makes the decision later to become Dorothy, he's like, oh, where did she come from? Like, who is she based on? What did it, you know, what was your first attempt? Like, like you've just nailed it straight away. So this little mm. insert here is fine. I, I miss a montage, obviously, I love a montage, but, but fine. Yeah, it's the same smash cut that they use in Some Like It Hot, I think. Yes. Where they're going to dress as women, bang, they're women. It, they yeah. don't bother with the montage. Um, so we've got a lot of acting business here. There's an acting class um, he's teaching. Um, he actually pulled in a local class from up the road and improvised with them yeah. which I thought was quite sweet and and he really wanted you know Hoffman is playing himself here because Michael Dorsey loves acting and he wanted to show that the character loves acting and so the advice he's giving is real that's what he's always say to actors there is no work I think he's always had a chip on his shoulder Hoffman because it took him so long to make it mm. and he was unemployed for so long so he's sort of talking the truth I think, he, I think he does a brilliant job of making you sympathetic towards actors which sometimes it doesn't sometimes it can be shorthand for like clowns or can't get a job or, you know, swerving in quote much real work. And I was really taken on the journey of like, this is a hard life if you choose to do it mm. because there is no work, 95% unemployment and all the rest of it. And there's obviously a craft at the centre of it. But I don't know, the temptation is when someone says, oh, I'm an actor, you're like, okay, whatever. Um, but the kernel of what's true about it, I mm. think they really get to it in this film. I hadn't appreciated how hard it was until I went freelance. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and the constant re rejection as a freelancer is yeah. similar to the constant rejection as an actor. It's worse with an actor, I think, because you're putting everything out there. Yes. But... I understand that pain a bit more now and it does capture it. He's, 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 they need someone older. They're looking for someone younger. He's the wrong height. Uh, we're looking for someone different. I can be different. We're looking for someone else. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, within a couple of minutes, we're right into the story. Uh, but he doesn't seem like that good an actor to me. It gets better. So the first right. one he does, I can't remember where he's... What's the monologue he's doing when he's in the sort of tuxedo? That's really death, good. Is it Death of a Salesman? It's something really good. Yeah, famous, Iceman Cometh. The Iceman Cometh. Yeah. But prior to that, you're like, no, you don't. I thought the, I thought the film was saying he doesn't really deserve these jobs because although he loves the craft, as a man, he's not even a good actor. And so it will all mm. come together when he dresses up as Dorothy. But then when he's got the tuxedo and he's doing the read and he says, oh, is my acting disturbing your sleeping or whatever it is in the theatre? You're like, oh, OK, I get it now. Like, you are excellent. Mm. I don't know. There's just a, a huge gear shift between the other auditions and whatever he's doing there. OK. And then I understood, which is, I think, a bit problematic for the film later because it's like everybody loves him. He's a brilliant actor. He is so entitled. It's unreal. Um, and I was like, OK, I... 
the trouble is because you're setting him up as like good his behaviour at the party is like oh you're the hero you're meant to be a good person a good actor everybody loves you and the way you are at that party doesn't sit quite right with me well yeah so it's a surprise birthday party um, they didn't really script it Elaine May says you can't write a party okay so I write you a roadmap and then you have a party so and... when he touches a woman's chest and says that's a pretty blouse that's not even in a script he just did that by himself well here's a question uh, he, he's creeping on quite a lot of girls in that party and yeah. as you say it makes him very unsympathetic uh, he keeps using the same line over and over again I wondered if this is a 1982 thing where we're going to dress our protagonist as a woman we need to show that he's straight yeah there's that and also I, I got it after I'd seen it on a second view and you'd be like oh at this point in your life you are quote marks a bad man you're going to become a good man mm-hmm. by dressing up as Dorothy and connecting with Julie and all the rest of it but we're showing you that you are you're disrespectful of women and you're you're bad so to touch someone's chest and say that's a nice blouse is like that's gross get your hands off mm. um, but then it's like I found it challenging because it's like that you're the hero I'm supposed to be rooting for you at this point yeah and, and I think although he does become a better person he's still trying to get into Julie's pants under yes, sort of false based pretenses. On just locking eyes with her yeah. over some and, and, scattered papers. But also under false pretenses and, and by yes. being dishonest with her. So in that respect, I've I've got a real problem with Michael Dorsey. And I think I yeah. even as a kid I found this very uncomfortable. There was just too much of this dishonesty in the film that I found it hard to get my head around. Or it was dishonesty for the wrong reasons, whereas maybe on Thursday the dishonesty is coming from a better place. A pure replacement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we got Bill Murray improvising a load of stuff here. All <laughs> that's that brilliant. Fish, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny. Uh, it's funny watching the documentary. They talk about, about how... The, the theatre in the ring. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good because you know it's improv as well, but it's just so funny and you never know where he's going to go next. I haven't seen it before. I didn't... Just a treat, such a treat for me. I didn't even know he was in it and mm. it's like, we're going to get a good five minutes of, of good Murray. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like it when he says... Um, I love it when people say, I loved your play. What happened? (laughs) Um, But uh, they asked him to improvise this theatre, this playwriter, this playwright who um, was pretentious and talking bullshit. But they didn't tell the extras extras that's what he was doing right. and so they didn't know whether to be enthralled by him mm. or laughing at him yeah. and it's funny you can see the look of confusion on their face and every time they cut back there's less people around him because he's just losing that audience but also there's a double thing going on there because he is Bill Murray he's a huge star at this point you're uh, assorted actors around a table being told to just go with it as Bill mm. Murray does this legendary improv if you don't laugh at him Mm. Then later on, when you're like, oh, Bill, do you remember me from so-and-so? Could you help me? No, fuck you. I can't do that. So that false laughter that famous people get, famous men definitely get a lot of, there should be some of, there's probably some of that going on as well because they want another gig. Yeah. Maybe. No, it's funny. It's funny watching their faces. Um, So he's got to help Sandy, uh, his friend of six years who... I don't know. Is there a connection there? I guess there is. Uh, she's got to prep for a soap opera audition. Uh, they do the prep, but the next day she's not allowed to read. Um, and then Michael goes to see his agent at CAA, George, played by the director, Sidney Pollock. And you can see why Hoffman suggested bring him in as the agent because their back and forth is very natural. Yeah, it's brilliant. And Pollock seems like an agent, doesn't yes, he? he does. <laughs> I mean, you've got more experience with agents than I do, but is that a believable agent? In the US, yeah, definitely. Like... Um... Um, you know, just the, the the focus on the bottom line, but also the exasperation, and also that he he seems really close to firing him because he's not making any money. Whereas I think here, 
because it's a bit more of a sort of boutique industry. Mm. You do look after people, I believe, like talent agents do look after people that maybe they're not bringing in loads of money, but there's such a special relationship and they really feel for them and there's and all of that. But obviously over there, there's so much money to be made. You don't want any dead weight. Mm. And it just, it just reminded when I first started and there was always that phrase, like, I can't get them arrested. I can't get them arrested. And I, I, I sort of didn't really get it. And then I did. And I was waiting for him to say that to sort of like punch the air in recognition. But just to be in CAA and anyway, and just to have him play in that sort of archetype, I really liked it. Yeah. And, and they set out the movie Central Problem here, um, even though we've seen it. They tell us it. Um, uh, George says, you argue with everybody. No one will hire you. Yeah. Bang. We get a smash cut to Dorothy Michaels. But we'll meet her after this short break. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cosy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Right, we're into a section I'm calling Meet Dorothy Michaels because, boom, that's some like it hot cut happens. Dorothy Michaels appears. Um, as I said, it took my missus a few seconds to twig that that was Dustin <laughs> Hoffman not knowing that that's what this film was about. Um, and she was, yeah, big smile when she realised. Yeah. Um, and so we meet the director, Ron, played by Dabney Coleman, um, who says uh, Dorothy, who's gone for the part that Sandy went for, is not right. They're looking for a very specific physical type. What does that mean? <laughs> I actually wasn't sure what that meant. Did they want her to be more glam or? I think I took it to be pretty. That's yeah. what I meant. He doesn't want to say it because you can't say that, yeah. but that's what you say. Yeah. Good. But uh, Dorothy isn't taking that. She threatens to knee him in the balls. And so she's immediately becoming successful by resorting to what the film posits as traditionally this male trait and this. Yeah. This. The reason he's not getting parts. I do yeah. find the message quite confusing. Me too. Because when he's with Sandy earlier and they're doing the rehearsal, sorry, she, she's going to audition and she's like, I'm not going to get the part. And he's like, what's the part? Oh, it's a woman. So they're running through the read and he's like, you can't access your rage. What is this? You know, you need to be enraged. So I feel like 
I, I, I really enjoyed the film, but then sometimes I'd step away and think, God, is the message here a man saying to the girls, hey, sisters, listen, if you just lean into these feelings, you'll get everything you want. Like it's never occurred to us that that's what we could do. There are so many other roadblocks to not acting like that that aren't just, oh, I never thought of it or I can't do it. And he doesn't ever, Dustin Hoffman will never understand that kind of thing. Um, and I, I found that irritating. Good. I did as well. And yeah. I, I didn't know if I got it wrong because this has been so acclaimed for being so ahead of its time that it feels like the actual central message is a bit wonky. The purest thing I could, like emotion was when after the after Dorothy sort of gets in the room and nails the reeds and they're like, oh, you've got the part. And I was like, I don't know what you saw in her then that made you change your mind. It's meant to be this big moment where she said to the director, oh, how it makes a woman masculine, shame on you. And that, that she's mm. still feminine, but powerful and enraged. And I didn't see that in, in Dorothy either. So I, I, I was very confused that she got the part. I just went along with it. Yep. Uh, first of the many lines about how ugly Dorothy is. Um, I'd like to make her a little more attractive. How far can you pull back? How about Cleveland? God, and later on when they make Sandy say she's fat. <laughs> it's like she's like a blade thin person. I, I just like, I, I think Sandy's a brilliant character, but it's like, are you just saying that because you're cross? But there's no way you can describe Dorothy as fat. Like, not in a million... You should do that anyway, mm. but, like, she definitely also isn't. It's, yeah, it's a weird line, that one, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, she should have said she's ugly. <laughs> then uh, it would be fine. Uh, we've got that Russian tea room scene that happened in real life. Um, uh, Dorothy asks George for directions. Uh, he doesn't recognise her. Uh, then she sits with him. In that scene, she's supposed to grab Sidney Pollock's hand, but Dustin Hoffman grabbed his balls... Um, and they, women do that all the time. And so. they, yeah. uh, well, no, you don't see it. It's still supposed to be him grabbing his hand because it's under the table. But, all right. But his reaction is a man who's having his balls grabbed. Sure. Um, and they had a huge row on set because actually, guess what? You aren't actually allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do it. It doesn't matter <laughs> if you're actually a man underneath women's clothes. Don't do it. No. Don't do it. It was uninvited and consent no. was not given. And it's not funny. Turns out Hoffman does have form. I don't know if we'll talk about <laughs> that later, but he's there's been allegations yes. which make this film even worse weirder that's why the blouse thing really threw me because you know you've had certain thoughts about Dustin Hoffman for years and years and years and then they're being slightly upended and then you see that blouse thing and then you've just told me it's probably not even scripted and you just think oh man mm. like that's not good is it why would it occur to you to do that sort of thing why would you do that mm. on film Dustin oh Dustin um so the scene where he loses or he's he nearly lo- he does he doesn't lose the cab to a nebbish guy Mm. Uh, he in the script he did lose the cab to that nebbish guy mm. and then Hoffman was the one that said I wouldn't lose my cab to this guy no. and so he got he did what they called a freebie which was you know he would get to do his take after they'd done the what was in the script okay. and his take is what ends up in the film because it's a funny moment when he yeah. throws the guy on the floor it's uh, funny but it's that it, it's a, such a complicated feeling because he, it's repeated in Mrs Doubtfire as well when someone tries to steal Mrs Doubtfire's bag and you think oh, do you know what when that happens to me not that People try and steal my cabs very often, but you know what I mean. You would like to react with a bit of strength and a bit of violence, but you just don't because yep. chances are, if it's a man doing it, they are going to be more strong than you are. So you don't. And so you, you're you pleased for Dorothy because you're like, yay, brilliant, you got to do it for us. But then you're like, oh, but that's, you know, you, you, there's a man under there, so it's not the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think there are a lot of jokes in this film that are those kind of jokes where it's a funny bit of physical comedy, but it actually undermines the message of the movie. Yeah. Um, Michael can't tell Sandy that they cast a man instead of her so he starts lying to her about where he's getting money from and then he sleeps with her for, see, for, for a bit of a shit reason <laughs> she's like what are you doing in your knickers or whatever in your pants whatever I'd lost track of what he was wearing by that point 
Um, and he's like, oh, it's because I want to have sex with you. And so th- thus then kicks off this whole subplot. Um, I thought they could have done a bit better with, you know, why they would sleep together. Yeah, because, you know, she's supposed to be dating another guy earlier. They don't make it clear that she's pining for him. Yeah. But now she starts pining for him straight after this. But um, I don't know. I quite like her as a character. I it think feels... she's brilliant. And I think the speech she does after they've woken up or got out of bed or whatever, which is like, just tell me now, is really, really insightful and good and done brilliantly. And he doesn't listen at all, obviously. He completely starts lying to her and, and deceiving her and standing her up and stuff like that. But she's so good in that scene. You, you love to collapse a character. And I wonder if we just didn't need the Julie character and the Sandy character could have been yeah. that part, um, whether Sandy's on the on the soap on the set, or whatever yeah. it is. I think they could have figured it out because... You know, you want a character that there's an on-off thing happening with. And so for there to be two at the same time, mm. I just think it's a bit messy. Yeah. Um, we get a getting ready montage to this bloody awful song, Go Tootsie Go. <laughs> Jesus, what were they? It's proper sitcom territory, like bad sitcom territory. Um, but we've got the Gina Davis uh, scene here. He hits his head on the door and starts talking about the table. Um, the other reason they cast her was for her height because... They wanted the the visual gag to be that her breasts were in Dustin Hoffman's face. Hilarious. <laughs> well, you are laughing. Um, he meets John Van der Horn, played by Commandant Lassard from Police Academy. Um, Vicky, <laughs> yeah. uh, you like talking about how they come up with names. Um, yeah. He's called Van Horn. Yeah, he is. I don't. I do you know this no. week again. I'm stumped. Yeah, I have nothing. Mm. Nothing for you. Listeners, Later if you can think maybe, of what yeah. they call the horny man Van Horn, uh, <laughs> let us know. Uh, now we're into the third section. Meet Emily Kimberly uh, because they're shooting this soap opera and um, Dorothy, Michael playing Dorothy, is playing the hospital administrator, Emily Kimberly. Um, she goes off book to avoid uh, kissing Van Horn um, and people seem to like it. Uh, then the director calls her toots. Doesn't like him condescending. Then Van Horn forces a kiss on her. Yeah, and we all laugh our heads off. Oh, the <laughs> 80s. All oh, the ever whatever times. The perennial times. Mm, not good. Um, but uh, Michael says in the next scene, I think Dorothy's smarter than I am. It's quite an interesting statement. Because it's pre- preceded by Bill Murray saying, how did you get away with it? I ignored him. I did it something like, I'm compressing it. I ignored him. I did it my way. And then I apologised afterwards and it was fine. So that's the way he's saying that's how a woman does it because we're you know trying to avoid conflict mm. and it still works and then maybe Dorothy is smarter to have done that and I totally get it and at first, it's it's such a complicated thing it's like at first I was like yeah brilliant you've acknowledged that and you can see that that's what happens and all these little decisions you make all the time about how to avoid this and achieve this and do whatever rather than just saying I want kind of thing but then. The and I apologise afterwards. It's like we don't want to apologise. We just want to do it like a man does and not have to apologise. So the apologising thing in some ways is smart because it saves your skin. But in other ways, it's not something for me, very personally, not something to reach for. Mm. I don't want to apologise. If a man wouldn't apologise, I don't want to have to apologise for doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. That's the complicated feeling. Yeah. He adds, I just wish he was prettier. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Dustin Hoffman added that line in. <laughs> Um, but her character takes off she starts getting fan mail and autographs and then she meets Julie's dad Les played by Charles Durning who's also a fan of the character and the actress Um, Julie as I said played by Jessica Lange she's the beautiful star of the soap Um, she invites him over um, he can't find anything to wear. I like that being a woman is giving him these insecurities he never had before. It's, yeah, I it's love almost that scene. It, it's almost like he's getting a body dysmorphia. Yeah, yeah. After a week in a dress, because yeah, he's thin and fit. 
He's got nothing to worry about, but it is funny. I mean, I know it's cheap, but talking about I've got nothing to wear and those stripes sit badly and all of a sudden, I think it's very funny. Yeah, I agree. Um, Julie, they have some girl talk and Julie says, when I find the one who can give me the worst possible time, that's when I make my move. I'm just saying that because I'm going to come back to that line. Um, he wants to know why she drinks so much. Um, and she says, because it's not fattening. Really? Mm. I thought she's alcohol was quite that. fattening. Yeah. She's a, I mean, it depends. I mean, she's not, if she's not sinking like four pints of bitter, which I don't think she is. But isn't wine very sugary? Wine is sugary. There's that famous quote that I always think of because I, <laughs> this is stupid. Like it's from Twiggy in the 60s. Um, how do you maintain this, you know, your tiny figure? And she's like, I only eat steak and I only drink champagne because, mm. you know, for the calories and whatever. And I think of that a lot. And I think there is a myth that um, alcohol, I mean, if, if it's all you have and you don't eat, I guess you are going to lose some weight there. Yes, definitely. But then I don't really feel, I think this like this sort of alcohol dependency is like this little thing running through it. She's always constantly, Julie's constantly offering out drinks. Mm. But this sort of, it's not fattening and it's not good for me. So is she on this sort of destructive cycle? Like, does it, does that thread get resolved or picked up? No, it feels a bit judgy and it's interesting learning that thing about the writer basing it on his daughter. So, And he said that writing this was like a form of therapy. So I think he obviously saw his daughter going through something and put it all into this character. What I took from it, because after she said the stuff about the drink, is that being a woman in the 80s is really hard. And it's like being a woman trying to cope with all these things, being a single parent and et cetera, has sort of driven her to drink. Not in, not as extreme as that sounds, but that's her coping mechanism for the contradictions and the things she has to navigate every day kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Um, now I saw a scene in the documentary behind the scenes of this film and I'm not sure if it's in the film so you might have to help me here in, during this sequence uh, do they talk about periods no not the version I saw oh my god <laughs> I don't know why they cut this scene out it's why so it's so funny it sounds risky I'll be no, honest I, I promise you it's funny <laughs> so Elaine May described this scene as like he's a spy undercover trying not to get caught sure so he's trying not to say the wrong thing but she asks him or she mentions her flow mm-hmm. and then she asks him about his flow and he doesn't know what that's referring to right so he says it's been going for months <laughs> <laughs> and it's just really funny. As he's, and she's like, what? And so they have this back and forth until he finally figures it out. It's a really funny scene. And I think it's sad they dropped it because it's only about 20 seconds. Um, Julie just wants someone to walk up to her with the truth. We'll come back to that. Mm. Um, back on set, the, uh, Dorothy's doing more ad-libbing. I love it when she orders the cap- cattle prods for men in the hospital over the phone. <laughs> that really made me laugh. Uh, but she's on to magazine covers now, including one with Andy Warhol. But why? What? Who knows? Weird. But fine. 15 minutes of fame, I guess. Um, <laughs> He has a big conversation with his agent where he says a lot of the lines that feel important to Dustin Hoffman, I think. He says, there's a woman in me. He says, I know what it's like to sit by the phone waiting for it to ring. Yeah, that's bad, isn't it? Really, really bad. It's really bad. So I, the imp- I can be Medea. I can be Lady Macbeth. You can't. Like You can't. You. I understand that you're doing a good job as Dorothy Michaels, but I, I think it's a bit much to say a cis man can understand the full gamut of experience that then enables you to be these tragic heroines and villains yeah. from like literature. It's just a bit much, but it is fine because it's undercut. I feel like it was undercut. It's like, you know, it's Michael grandstanding and his agent is like, don't be ridiculous. You can't be Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah, and I think, I think that's where it's good because I feel like, I think Dustin Hoffman thinks that what Michael's saying here is right, that there is a potentially great actress inside of him. But what his agent's saying is actually right. Yeah. That this is all bollocks and you need to chuck this in immediately. Yeah. Um, And the way that it's cut, 
and so obviously the way it's directed leaves you the, the the emphasis feels quite balanced in the scene you don't come away from the scene thinking well the agent was being unreasonable of course he could be Lady Macbeth and you don't come away from it going well you know what a pretentious dickhead for even thinking it I think it feels really neatly balanced mm. as it's, it's you know it's, it's really impressive that you walk out from the scene I guess just believing what you what you actually feel in your heart which is I don't think you can be Eleanor Roosevelt kind of thing yeah Agreed. Uh, they go to a high society party and he tries that line out that Judy just told us she this wants to hear. This my head off, this scene. What is this scene? <laughs> so at first, I was like, that's awesome because there's context is everything. Or mm-hmm. context is a lot of it. So something you say to a woman that you believe is a woman that's your friend about, it wouldn't it be great if a man was just completely honest? Out of context, out of when it happens in the real world, when a man actually says it to you, the context is entirely different. So of course she throws a drink in mm. his face. So I was like, oh, wow, that's brilliant. That's acknowledging that context has a role to play and all the rest of it. But then I was like, oh, is it actually bad? Because does it lean into women say one thing and mean another? And you can't what, trust what a woman says, which then takes you on a really scary path to no doesn't necessarily mean no because women say one thing and mean another. No, I felt like it's at his, his, it's at his expense. Good. And okay. it's kind of, it's it's what we talked about on the Groundhog Day episode where when you're using these malicious means ah, to get you, information you get to want. get a woman into bed, that's... So a question to you is, is the line that she says about, I wish a man would come up and say, what is it? Like, we've got a connection. Let's just, whatever, yeah. hop into bed or something. Is that a famous line? Because it's very specific. And if if a man you'd never met at a party came up to you and said it, you'd be like, "Do you moonlight as Dorothy Michaels then?" Because I just said that to her like no, two days ago. No, I don't think it's a famous line. So I don't understand why she doesn't go. Fuck! I said that. Yes. Yeah. Are you <laughs> word my for place? word. <laughs> yeah. So she's standing up for women in the workplace here um, a lot. Um, and not getting fired, which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> How's that work? Yeah. She's, it just feels like Dorothy's going, if you just said what was on your mind, everything would fall into place. Mm. And especially later, Julie's like, you taught me everything. It's like, mm. wow, okay, okay. Um, we It does occur to us. It will have occurred to Julie, mm. especially Julie's character. He's like, you know, she introduces herself. She's like, oh, I'm the hospital slut. And when she does a scene that's quite powerful, she looks really pleased with herself, like some proper acting and Ron undercuts and is like, you know, it's uh, let's have this stop having this self-congratulatory party kind of thing. So I don't know. It's like it would have occurred to her, but she as an actress would have been fired. And the character, if the character had stood up, the hospital slut, she just would have been killed off. So I don't know. Mm. I, di- I didn't like it. No, and I just don't like this implication that only a man could think up these things, that these women couldn't possibly do it for themselves. I, I honestly feels like it's not that Michael would even say, I know you've thought of it, but you don't feel you can do it. Mm. It's like you've never even thought. No. Because Sandy's there early to go, women have no rage. And that's what that scene mm. is about. So I think it's saying that women don't tap into those feelings because they, they don't exist. Mm. Right. Uh, and you know me, I'm mad as hell. So terrifying. Uh, <laughs> right. Penultimate section: bizarre love triangle because Michael or Dorothy visits Julie's dad's farmhouse. This is really confusing because I, I I like it. I love a road trip, and we're on holiday. First of all, if someone says to you, "Do you want to come up stay for the holidays?" What we're sharing a bed? Are you being? Are you serious right now? Like I don't care who you are. Girls do that. <laughs> no, they do. They do. I'm not going to say they're pillow fights, but they have pillow fights. I would be absolutely livid. You've tricked me up here, Julie. Mm. Predator, actually. Like it's unreal that she's like, oh yeah, we're just going to bunk in together. My kid's got a room. I'll sleep on the floor with the baby then. I don't mind. There's a, a perfectly good couch. Um, it's a massive house. And also during the farming montage. <laughs> <laughs> um, Julie does stick her finger 
in Dorothy's mouth, which is quite a strange thing to do while they're cooking. Yeah, it is. It's I don't care who the fuck you are. Don't stick your <laughs> finger in my mouth while I'm cooking. But also, like you said, Dad fancies Dorothy. Dorothy mm. fancies Julie. Mm. Julie, it feels like in this section to me, wants a new mom. Mm. So I was yes. like, oh, I don't know where to put my emotions. We're entering into... What I I want it to be rom com territory because you're trying to get your partner, you're trying to get your girl, and yet there's this huge distraction going on, which is the dad and the fact that your girl thinks that you could be her new mum. <laughs> That's quite complicated. Yeah, it is. It is. Our dad talks. He seems to be against women's lib. Oh, I tell you what, that that gave me horrible. Like, I found that very triggering. That, that's like every family party I've ever been to. <laughs> I, I think that's for us to not feel too sad for him um, when he gets his comeuppance. Because he's a bit of a dick. Yeah. Um, okay. She does a speech about purple flowers that's very sweet. It's oddly moving. Yeah. When I was like, is this the whole story mm. that you chose some wallpaper with your dead mother? But then... She's such a good actor that she, mm. it, it did work. Yeah. But I don't know, in, in other hands, it, it veered a bit into sort of naked gun territory a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 amazing it stayed in the film, actually. It's one of those things that you think would easily, quickly be cut from a comedy. It's but long, yeah. Yeah, um, Michael strokes her hair, which is quite creepy. But then his wig turns <laughs> and, and it's quite said, funny. And then she said, oh, my mum used to do that. What's going on? <laughs> right, Emily Kimberley has brokered through, so the studio is giving her another year which um, Michael does not want. Um, now we get an uncomfortable scene where um, Julie is pouring her heart out to Dorothy and Dorothy makes a move on her. <laughs> uh, and so, understandably, Julie thinks Dorothy's a lesbian at this point. Yep. And so sends her on a date with her dad. Yeah, because you have to tell him in person for some reason. I yeah. just found it annoying. I was like, I don't want this scene. I like the, I, when I got to the scene and with the marriage proposal, I was like, oh, that is fun. But when that was happening... As like, it feels like we're swerving the big thing. I agree. They're chucking situations at us which yeah. don't fit together logically. Like a farce almost. Yes. Like I, she would not suggest he goes uh, to date her dad and she would not suggest... And he would not go no. on that date. After what's just happened. No. So, um, yeah, it doesn't really ring true. Uh, so the proposal happens. He heads home and Van Horn's there. He wants a piece of him too, singing at the window and then uh, starts trying to shag her. This is a good scene for me because... The it's what I'm trying to say. So when Bill Murray comes home, there's a brilliant they they they, they sidestep it and it because it is heavy. I get why you do it and it's mm. it's hard to make it funny. But Bill Murray is like, oh my god, what happened? And then Michael's saying, you know, I was probably in, a little bit in trouble there. So that's good. It's like you you maybe you assume that if you were sexually assaulted, you could deal with it, but it turns out you can't. So that's you know good to learn that. Um, but Bill Murray says, well, why did you let him in? And so there's a really interesting moment where we could go into some victim blaming, which is super realistic. Like if that sexual assault had been seen through and Dorothy had gone to the police or whatever, or told her friends, it would have been, well, why you didn't think you shouldn't have let him in. And they just move away from it, which I totally understand. But I found that really, I found that quite satisfying. Yeah. And he says, um, Commandant Lassard uh, says, sorry, Dorothy, I didn't understand. Um, and it felt to me watching some of the behind the, behind the scenes stuff is that's how their attitude was to a lot of these male characters was that actually they're not bad people. They just don't understand that yeah. this is not what you do. Yeah. Which obviously is not the way we would look at these no, situations now. No, it's a huge conversation, isn't it? About is that is it just easy to go, oh, I didn't know. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Sandy shows up. He gives her some chocolates. She asks if he's gay. Um, he tells her he's in love with another woman. Um, and she storms out and leaves the movie. Uh, she gets some great lines here. Yeah. Uh, but I'm quite sad to see her go. Me too. You know, she deserved better because I think, yeah, she's sort of the the most, I don't know. 
She's the one I'd be mates with. <laughs> she's brilliant. She's yeah. just absolutely brilliant. She's a real person. Yeah. Um, his agent says to him, since when do you care about how other people feel? He's changing, Vicky. <laughs> and they're telling us that he's changing. So he's te- that we were being told just in case we missed it. <laughs> and now we're into the finale, the big reveal, um, because they've got to redo Emily's party scene live on television. Um has a moment with Julie behind the scenes. Uh, Julie tells Dorothy that she loves her, but she can't love her. Mm. Uh, and this is the moment that, yeah, you mentioned Vicky. Um, she talks about how Dorothy taught her to stop hiding, taught her to be herself, taught her to stand up for herself. Yeah, by doing what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess by leading by example. But the message is, is, is this weak-willed woman just needs the inspiration of a strong man dressed as a woman. Yeah, you know, 100%. it's not the right message, is it? I was it? trying to think of... I'm sure they had obviously. You know, I'm sure they had good intentions. How do you make it work? And it's like, is it maybe the thing that I couldn't go, quite get past is that they've only just met. So, what does that say about Julie? That in two weeks or what? Well, not however long it is, a few months that you know her world has been turned upside down by this strong will man, just as a woman. Maybe if they, like you say, collapse the characters. Maybe if they'd known each other for years, mm. there's something else there. But it didn't. Yeah, it didn't sit right with me. So um, Emily starts improvising, and there's some amazing acting here from Hoffman because he he's basically written these lines himself. Dustin Hoffman yeah, and so he's improvising them pretending to improvise them uh, he improvised the fact that he's Emberly Kimberly's brother Edward Kimberly <laughs> um, and this is all comedy built out of reactions um, so the lines aren't necessarily funny but just cutting to everyone in Dorothy's life is where the laughs come from uh, we even get Bill Murray at home Truman show style commenting yeah. on what he's seeing Um uh, Julie punches him in the stomach. And yeah, he's, he, that's the end. Everyone knows. Uh, next, we've got him sulking in the park. Yeah, there's no act three in this film, which is bananas. Mm. So we've said Sandy just exits stage left and she's never seen again. There isn't an act three. Instead, what we've got is an apology in a bar. Well, yeah, I, I, how Pollock put it was that he's betrayed Julie, he's betrayed Les and he said what we'd ended up making was because we'd cast two such good actors is it felt almost mean and it was quite difficult so we then needed a series of apologies mm. which is a weird way to end a film. Yeah, it's really weird. For, um, just after he's pushed over a mime. Yeah. <laughs> which was another one of his freebies. It was just supposed to him be sulking and walking and then thankfully Dustin Hoffman for once went and spoke to the mime and said, I'm going to push you this time. It is pretty funny. It's funny. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you get the, you, as you say, you've got this awkward scene in the bar with Les and then an awkward scene on the street with Julie. And then we're done. And then we're done. <laughs> yeah. uh, the the back and forth between between um, Michael and, and Julie is, is Julie says, I miss Dorothy and he says, you don't have to. She's right here and she misses you. Um, the better man with you as a woman. Mm. So it's funny. They said they overwrote the line and Hoffman couldn't get it out. So he stumbled over it. And that's what they ended up keeping in the film, that's which cute. I think is good. It's, you know, it feels natural. Yeah. Um, but he's got to learn to be a good person without the dress. And then he sort of says, the hard part's over. We're already good friends. Yeah, implying we can know. just have sex now. Because <laughs> yeah. that's what all friends do. Yeah. After a few months, weeks, whatever. And I like the fact that she asks to borrow his yellow outfit. I think it's a good way of her keeping it ambiguous as to how she feels about him. Yeah, and not burying Dorothy. As yeah. in that never happened. Kind yeah, of thing. and they walk up the street and she keeps her hands on her hips, which I really like. Yeah. But then it frees frames on them going suddenly arm in arm. And I'm like, you didn't need to... I, didn't, I wish they'd not done that because to me that implies 
that there's something there. Whereas if she just kept her hands on her hips with him to her side, I would still be questioning, well, are they friends or is is something going to happen? That's a good point. um, But also, if they get together, is that the sad ending? Because I'm going to go back to that line she said earlier. Um, She finds the one who can give herself the worst possible time Mm -hmm. and then gets involved with him. Mm. Is that what she's doing here with Michael? Maybe. I mean, I guess probably not in Hollywood speak, but... No, 100% it, not. It, no, but it does make me wonder based on the way he's behaved for the yep. last two hours. Yeah. And that's our ending. Amazing. So, um, I was thinking about the poster. Yeah. It put Dorothy in front of the Stars and Stripes. Yes. Like, implying that this is, I don't know, a story America should be proud of. This is... It's always, it's thrown me for years because I know what this film is about because it's really famous, but I always thought there was a big... Sort of something taking place on a national stage mm. because of the flag, mm. and then I knew that there was a joke about Eleanor Roosevelt because someone said it to me in the pub, and I was like, "Oh, maybe that's where Dorothy's career takes her—is to the White House in some fashion." But no, so no, I don't know what that is. Oh, strange. Yeah. I mean, misleading, but it worked because um, the film was nominated for ten Oscars, right? Ten Academy. Just by putting a flag on the thing. <laughs> That's wild. Well, <laughs> I'm suggesting maybe it helped think in America that this was some story of, of, of US pride. But um, yeah, and it made about $180 million from a $20 million budget. And as I said, it was second only to E.T. in 1982. That's, mm, that's a smash. That doesn't happen often. Well, then there you go. Mrs. Doubtfire's second biggest movie of 93. They were both was the second. Yeah. Yeah. What are the chances? Slim. Of a knockabout comedy being number two. Very slim. <laughs> I love it. I miss those days. Uh, and that's it. Brilliant. All right, should we do the bits then? Sure. Uh, what's your favourite scene, Vicky? Well, it's funny that you did ask me about it. It's when he goes to CAA the first time and, and um, yeah. Michael has a bit of a set two with his agent and talking. I think George is really, really funny in that scene. And I think Michael comes across as a bit of a prick, which is what you need. And just talking about being a tomato. And I just thought it was hilarious and very Mm. satisfying. I do also like the magazine montage because I do like a montage. And it's a montage and um, a makeover in one. So double points from me. Uh, It's funny you say the tomato thing. That's based on something real. (laughs) So do you know Zero Mostel? No. He's the guy in the producers that isn't Gene Wilder. Oh, right. He's the other guy. Incredibly funny. Um, Hoffman said he saw him do a one-man show where he played a bunch of vegetables. Right. And so he'd seen it done. He'd seen someone convincingly pull off a tomato. <laughs> Sorry. As... <laughs> I mean, I, I should reword that. He'd seen... Oh, I'm not going to bother. Once you've seen that, and it's the sort of thing you can't unsee because you think, how do you do it? But it, it can be done. <laughs> Ketchup came out. Oh, oh, what? Oh, I don't know why I'm doing that. I don't know any tomatoes. <laughs> to feel bashful around. Um, my scene is, is all those reactions to the big reveal at the end um it, it, i just think it's a really funny climax and um ending with the line does jeff know is really funny yeah because he thinks that they're a couple oh yeah um most valuable whatever <clears throat> uh, terry gar actually mm, excellent she she's terrific but the film really short changes her um in terms of you know she's especially the last scene she's in where she's like okay i'm heartbroken but it's fine i'll take these chocolates and i'm done yeah they make her seem like almost neurotic yeah. like she's the idiot or something and what she was asking for in that first scene when they've been in bed together is completely reasonable and he should just be honest with her mm. and he isn't and so she gets more she does get a bit sort of wilder and sort of more neurotic as the film goes on and she, she's driving her mad and she lists those feminist books she's read in that last scene yeah and i feel like is are they saying that's a negative thing yeah are they? They're saying that she's 
the, that it's a, a kind of or is the film on her side? I'm actually not sure. I don't think it is. I think well, because it, it it doesn't it doesn't she doesn't get a proper ending, no. so it can't be. Mm. But it's a, it's a common rallying cry. I I know it's like I know my rights kind of thing. I've read these books. I know my rights. But if you've read those books and understood not understood them, that's really patronising. You might not be in that position because you wouldn't. You may, you maybe you'd have more in your defences to sort of deal with a man like Michael kind of thing. Mm. So using the they're not self help books <laughs> like feminist manifestos, and that's the sort of it's a uh, slightly misogynistic trope. But it's like I know you know I read self help. I I can do anything kind of thing. I'm an empowered woman because I did this stuff, and it's like it comes from a different place. And there we go. Yeah, so Terry Gar. Yes, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going for the woman who is uncredited on the graduate and uncredited here, Elaine May. Good. Um, because. Um, you know, she's not in the documentaries behind the scenes. She's not on the poster. Um, but they all talk about her. I mean, it's not like they pretend she wasn't yeah. a big part of it. All the writers and the director and Dustin Hoffman all say Elaine May is the one who figured out the structure of this film, figured out a lot of the women characters and worked out how all those lies could converge at the end, which is a complicated thing to do. And she's just a brilliant woman. So let's give her a shout, Elaine, mate. And if you could change anything, what would you change? I think we need to give it an act three. So I think Michael has to do something that thematically is satisfying in order to win Julie back rather than just sort of um, doorstep her on the street and apologise to her. We should pull Sandy back into it. It should probably be during the play so that we get to see a bit of Jeff's play because this play that's been put on in Syracuse is really built up and then we don't get to see any of it. So somehow, let's have the characters converge there, but then maybe give it a button um, in the city because that would be better. But it doesn't have an act three. It has two apologies, one of which is randomly in a bar that Les is kind of randomly in um, and the other one just on the street, which repeats the beat. So it needs a good sort of 10 minute act three. Why not? Jeff's play. In Jeff's play, yes. I've written down Jeff's play. We need to see Jeff's play, I think. Yeah. I think we need that climax. And maybe some of the learnings from this story are in the play. I don't know, but I think I think you're right. I yeah. think that's where it feels like everything's headed. Yeah. You've set it up. Pay it off. Okay, and that's your lot for Tootsie. Um, no quiz this week. Uh, so let's look to next week. And it's my turn to clue again. Uh, <laughs> though, because Alex was confused, he actually sent one over. Great. So let's do his clue. And if... It's not good. If people don't like it, we can blame him. Perfect. So here is Alex's clue. I'm excited. You can run, but you can't hide. Okay. You can run, but you can't hide. Uh, That's Alex's clue. By the way, I was thinking, um, Alex really wouldn't have enjoyed this episode today, would he? No. No, it's probably good he's not. <laughs> okay. All right, that's your lot. Um, if you want to follow us on the socials, we're at ClashPod on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to do us a solid, please subscribe or write a review or force a friend to listen. And that really is your lot. So thanks for listening. And we'll be back on Thursday with Mrs. Doubtfire. This was a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. 